0: Good morning, Bethel. Just a quick heads up to the. Am I? Is this on? No, it's not. There it is. Just a quick heads up to the musicians. Um, that song that we just sang, Nothing But the Blood, is, comes right from um, our text for this morning. So I think it would be appropriate for us to, to end with that. So just so that they know that little audible change um, instead of Refiner's Fire. Um, so, we just finished. If, if maybe you're visiting this morning or you haven't been here for a few weeks, we just finished a series on the local church um, over the last several weeks. And um, let me just say briefly here there is an opportunity tonight to apply some of the things that we have um, considered over these last few weeks. Can I encourage all of you, certainly any of you that are members here of Bethel, any of you that are considering? membership. Um, If you consider this your church home, strongly encourage you to attend the annual meeting tonight. Um, It's an opportunity for us to look back over this past year and evaluate what God has done and celebrate, give thanks for what God has done, and then also to look ahead to this coming year. Our fiscal year runs from September to August, so that's why we do it in the fall here. And also look forward to this next year um, seeking god 's guidance for the things that he 's laid on our hearts to be seeking. Um, we also affirm the budget and um, elders and deacons for this coming year so there 's also opportunities for Q and A and your feedback and affirmation and questions and all of that is just very important, taken seriously in the process. So encourage you to apply this past Several weeks teaching on the local church by, by coming tonight, joining us from 6 to 7. We'll be meeting in here. We have typically met in the youth room, but that room is under construction, so we'll be meeting in here at 6 o'clock. So that series is done, and we are embarking on a new study this morning through the book of Isaiah. Um, so why are we studying this book of Isaiah? Man, it's a really big book. Like, how long is this going to take? Um... Well, there's lots of reasons why we're studying Isaiah. Let me just give you a few of them. First, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so we need to benefit from the grace and the truth, this inspired word from all over scripture. Um, we're committed to a balanced diet here at Bethel, Old Testament and New Testament. Um, so we actually have a pattern, if you've noticed it, um, going back and forth between Old Testament and New Testament books. Um, Isaiah is obviously massively important in the story of the Bible. Um, it's quoted in the New Testament, second only to the Psalms, and it's alluded To many more times um, than it's actually quoted, you know, word for word. It is a gold mine of grace and truth. But you know what? With mines, you got to dig to get the gold, right? So we will have to do some digging. There's a lot of historical, cultural distance between where we stand today and the world of Isaiah. So sometimes we have to do some work to bridge that gap and understand what was going on so that we can understand how it applies to us now. But you know what? We do that all the time, right? We do that with tech stuff so that we can actually benefit from our smartphone or our computer and you need to figure out the jargon so that you even know how it works, right? But if it's worth it to you, you'll, you'll do that. Um, so anyway, um, or... People go on crazy hikes into the Himalayas all the time because it's worth it for the the breathtaking views. So Isaiah is like the Himalayas of God's glory. Um, So we might need to get in shape, you know, as far as our study of the Bible goes, but we are going to see some really stunning vistas of the glory of God and His plan and purposes. So... So I'm on a mission to make the treasure trove that is the Old Testament and particularly Isaiah more accessible, more understandable um, as we go through it. So pray for me that God would give me help to make it accessible. Um, So, so much of the glory of God in this book, His holiness, His infinite superiority to all other so-called gods, the things that we tend to run to as our functional gods and saviors, Um, and also so much about his mercy and patience and desire to save and bless. Um, So, just in case you are wondering, um, it's mapped out for about a year's worth of messages, okay? But it'll probably take us a year and a half because we'll have some plan breaks, like we did with Luke, some plan breaks after, you know, 12, 15 messages in Isaiah. So, Um, As we get started into chapter 1, we're going to see here a lot of metaphors and figures of speech to describe sin and its effects, and it's intended to shed light on our own hearts and lives, okay? So we need to do the work of understanding those images and then not hold it out at arm's length, but see um, how it shines the light into our own hearts. We need to see the magnitude of humanity's sin, especially our own. And then we're also going to see glimpses of the character of our great God, whether in judgment or salvation, and that is intended to awaken our, and bolster our faith in Him as we see His greatness, as we see His trustworthiness. We need to see the magnitude of His glory um, and trust in Him. So let's read the verses of our study here this morning, Isaiah 1, verses 1 through 20. You can find it in... The Pew Bible, if you're using that, on page 566. And then we'll pray and, and dive in. Isaiah 1.1 1, 1 through one twenty. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, For the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey, its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners." And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of burying them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice. Correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are, as we have sung, holy, holy, holy. And we are not. And if there is any hope of not being judged by you when we meet you, we need to be cleansed and washed and made righteous in your sight. And So we thank you that you did what we could not do, You sent your son to bleed and die in our place so that we could be washed clean. And before your throne, we could have a strong and perfect plea. Jesus as our righteousness. It is not in us. There is nothing but the blood of Jesus that can cleanse us and wash away our sin. So would you remind us of these great truths that are more important than anything that we'll read on the news this week, anything we'll see on Facebook, anything we will obsess about when we wake up in the morning and fret and worry, would you please remind us of the great truths of the gospel that you are this great and holy God and we dare not trivialize or try to domesticate you. Or ignore you that we are unholy and unrighteous and sinful and in such great need of your mercy and grace and so prone to wander and then remind us of how merciful and gracious you are help us to really see and really believe your mercy toward us in Christ and I pray that we would respond in faith wholehearted whether that be to deal honestly with the conviction that you bring, to not put on airs or keep up the mask if you expose our hypocrisy, to come and just walk in the light and allow you to wash us clean again or maybe for the first time. So Lord, would you speak and give us ears to hear? Would you Show us your glory and give us eyes to see as we study this vision that you gave Isaiah so many years ago, but it's so relevant for us today. Show us its relevance. By your spirit, come and teach us. By your spirit, come and show us ourselves. Show us the holy God and our sinless Savior, Jesus, who died in our place. In his name we pray, amen. Okay, so there is an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful for you to follow along, and I think also the outline will show up on the screen behind me if you wanna do it that way. So, we prayed for our eyes to see, and what we need to see is the vision. Um, first point here in the little introduction verse of the whole book, verse one. Read along with me. Follow along as I read. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Okay, so in this little introduction, this first verse, there's several important things that we need to see, need to note um, in the introduction. It's a massive book, massively important, um, and... There's a lot to see here in just its first verse. So first, notice that this is the vision, singular, that Isaiah saw. Okay, do you see it there? The vision of Isaiah, which he saw. So the ministry of Isaiah ran roughly from 740 B.C., the year that King Uzziah died, to 680-ish B.C., which is about 60 years if you... Or doing your math. So it spanned the reign of four different kings of Judah. Okay, so Jerusalem was the capital of Judah. So it's concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In those years, in that span of years, he saw a lot. The prophet of God saw a lot of moral decline, geopolitical threats, turmoil. I mean, he lived in tumultuous times. Okay, during the reign of Uzziah, which led up to the start of Isaiah's ministry, Uzziah reigned for a good long time. The surrounding kingdoms and powers, Assyria, Egypt, were going through dynamics that basically kept them preoccupied and that left Israel and Judah well enough alone. And in that context, they prospered economically. Okay, but in the midst of that External prospering, the spiritual state of the people was steadily declining and was actually being hollowed out from within. Okay, so when King Uzziah died, 740 BC, the king of the golden years, he's dead. The nation is spiritually dull, and now the political military threats around them are rising. Okay, so this is like a perfect storm, right? Listen to one commentator, Barry Webb. He says, these were turbulent times and the immediate future promised to be even more so. Battles were won and lost. Kingdoms rose and fell. The world was an unstable and dangerous place in which people struggled to survive and make sense of their lives. History as they experienced it was characterized by constant change, intense, threatening, and confusing. And so it must have remained if God had not spoken into it. That sounds pretty relevant, (laughs) sounds pretty contemporary in the days of Ebola threats and terrorist attacks and financial uncertainty and moral decline and political weakness. Well, remember what this book is, okay? It is the vision of Isaiah which he saw. So into all of that turbulence, all those threats, God spoke, God showed Isaiah over and over and over again that he was the great king and that he was in control of the movement of history and that he was in control of the rise and fall of nations. Okay, So Isaiah saw that God superintends history and he can supersede any political or military power or threat. He really can save. He really can protect He really can help. He really can be trusted, no matter what. Okay, so Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned all that he saw, and he compiled it into this single vision of who God is, of who we are, of what God's plans are for history, stretching not only hundreds of years into the future from Isaiah's time, but actually stretching all the way to the end. When we get to the end of of Isaiah, it's going to be speaking of the end of all things. So this book has a massive scope, revealing who God is, revealing who we are, revealing God's purposes, okay? That day when he will fully, finally set everything to rights, make all things new in the new creation. So we need to see that we need to see reality from God's perspective, Okay, we need vision. We need prophetic vision. They did then and we do now. So we dare not read our times by means of the news or our human interpretations. Okay, how often do you hear something on the news or you just get depressed after the news or you you wake up in the morning after you've watched the news and you're like, you know, freaked out and spinning on all that's going on and what is it going to mean and blah, 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 blah. You need prophetic vision. You need the word of the Lord to break in and interpret reality for you. We all need this, okay? We need to see reality about God and ourselves from God's eye view, and Isaiah is all about that. So what is the message of this vision of Isaiah? Well, conveniently, Isaiah's name sums it up, okay? So his name, Isaiah, means Yahweh saves, The Lord saves. So if God saves is the two-word summary of the book, what do we need to be saved from? Why does God need to save in the first place? What does he need to save us from? If we have eyes to see, it's very clear that we need to be saved from ourselves, our sin, and our self-salvation projects. It was true for the people of Judah. It's true for us. Okay, so... The rebels, point number two, to see what we need to be saved from. Look there in verse two. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Okay, so this vision is so big, so cosmically significant, that heaven and earth are actually called into the courtroom to see and hear it, to witness so who's going to hear this case? Well, in any case that God was bringing to the earth, it should have been his people that were the jury. But instead, they're the defendants. Do you see it? So here is this implicit, but you've got to realize how big this king is, this one who's speaking, the Lord who can save. He's so great that he can summon the heavens and the earth. Um, who else can subpoena the cosmos? Who else can get them into the courtroom? So here's the point of all this. Sin is cosmically significant. It's not just something that happens in a corner. Okay, how, how do we typically respond to the exposure of our sin, even if it's just between two people? Oftentimes we're defensive. You know, we kind of defend ourselves. We excuse ourselves. Ah, I'm not, I'm hurting anyone. We, we kind of defend ourselves to ourselves. We minimize it. But the reality is that all sin hurts us. We'll see that more as we go along here in chapter 1. It's a forsaking and despising of God. And also, sin hurts others because we're supposed to be a loving light to our neighbors and to the nations. I mean, sin is why the earth was cursed in the first place. This is cosmically significant stuff. It's why the present heavens and earth will be burned with fire one day, and a new heavens, a new earth will be made. Again, Isaiah 65 and 66 end there. So our sin is cosmically significant. Now listen, just stop and think about this for a second. We are strange creatures. We want, on the one hand, to claim credit for our successes, and we want to excuse or blame shift our failures. Have you ever noticed this? Well, you kind of can't have your cake and eat it too, right? But we try. Now here, we want our lives to matter and be significant, right? We're oftentimes disappointed and dissatisfied with the size of our lives. Seems so ordinary and insignificant and meaningless and, you know, on and on. You know, make the widgets. And yet when it comes to our choices and their consequences, we play them down. It's not that big of a deal. Listen to what Ray Ortland Jr. wrote. Do we feel rebellious? Rarely. We may feel, I guess he's quoting King Lear here, I wish I, I have no Shakespeare experience, sorry. Not cultured enough. Um, we may feel more sinned against than sinning. Is that your daily experience? We may feel that God is picking on us here. After all, we're doing the best we can and life is hard. What is he expecting of us? It takes the heavens and the earth, it takes the entire cosmos to witness the enormity of our offenses against God, how dimly we grasp the significance of our lives. We shrink our self-awareness down to the sequential passing of one moment after another, thinking piecemeal, rarely looking beyond, unaware of the magnitude of what we are before God. We trivialize our choices. We don't think they matter that much. But God does not trivialize us. To him, there is no greater tragedy in the universe than his own children in rebellion against him. So we want to be significant, but we don't want our sin to be significant. We can't have our cake and eat it too. Okay, we need vision. We need to see who we are and how we are. We need vision to see how significant our choices are. We need vision to see how significant God is in all of life. Okay, so this is what our sin is like. Look at it again. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. That's what our sin is like if we have eyes to see it. It's rebellion. Okay, have you ever had or do you have in your mind a picture of an insolent teenager? Maybe this is really close to home. I don't know. But if not, you've probably seen it somewhere or other. Maybe you were one, like me. So his parents, let's say, in this picture we're painting, have you know no perfect parents. Okay, that's a given. But let's say these parents have faithfully loved him or her. They've sacrificially provided and protected. They've lovingly trained and disciplined. They've poured out time and energy untiring. They've embraced countless costly inconveniences, all kinds of life adjustments, and then this child becomes a teenager, starts to roam with the wrong crowd, and rebels against faithful, imperfect, loving parents. You've seen it, you've heard it, the sarcastic, biting words, the coldness, the indifference, the thanklessness, and the entitlement. The rolled eyes and the huffs, the cold shoulders and the blazing scorn, the public comments aimed at dishonoring and shaming you. Can't really even respond. How often, has this ever happened? How often does this rebellious child read your words or actions or discipline or love differently than you intended? Almost incorrigible. In a very real sense, and I don't say this to offend, I'm saying, listen to these words. This is the way it happens. You are damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. You're judged, and you lose either way. You can't win for losing. This rebellion is ugly. It deserves severe punishment. Are you feeling it? Are you tracking with me? Ever seen this? Do you know? Can you taste it? Guess what? That's us. That's what our sin is like. And we need to see that. We need to own our own insolence. We need to see our folly. Look at how verse 3 describes it. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. I mean, if anyone should know Yahweh, know the Lord, the one who saves, it should be his people. But due to their sin, the people of God are making oxen and donkeys look smart. Okay, moral of the story, sin makes you dumber than a donkey. It would be funny if it wasn't true. So how does God respond to to such rebellion? Again, taste the insolence. (laughs) Maybe how did you respond if if you were that parent? Well, look at verse 4. It's... He actually responds with, a, with wistful grief, the wistful grief of love. He has every right to be angry and only angry, and he is angry. We'll get to that in a minute, but here he's grieved. Ah! Oh. Ah, oh, sinful nation. You're supposed to be a holy nation, a people laden with iniquity. You're supposed to let me bear your burdens. Offspring of evildoers, you're supposed to be children of God, children who deal corruptly. What does that all amount to? They have forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. That is the clarity the people of Judah needed. They flattered themselves. They were blind to their blindness. They were in need of vision. The reality was that they had forsaken the Lord. They had despised the Holy One of Israel. They were utterly estranged from their loving Heavenly Father. Okay, so if your faith is genuine and you're walking with the Lord, then that is what you were saved from. Don't forget it. Don't ever forget it. But you might be in a place where you're just playing games religiously and you flatter yourself and you need to hear and see what God says here. Okay? So let's pass over verses five and six for now and look at the effects of their sin in seven and eight. We'll come back to five and six. All kinds of effects of sin, personal, societal. Look at verse seven. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. So these images, sadly, were not foreign to the people of Isaiah's time. Okay, so those in the southern kingdom certainly knew of the total destruction that took place up in the northern kingdom. Assyria just totally wiped out Israel, referring to the northern kingdom, 722. In the south, they were attacked by Assyria. You'll read about that later in Isaiah. At one point, all the fortified cities around Jerusalem were taken by the Assyrians. Okay, so think about it this way. Back in agrarian times, people would build temporary shelters out in the field during the times of harvest so as to not lose precious time walking back and forth from the fields during that really important window of harvest, right? So these little lean-tos would be pretty pathetic if you're speaking of normal dwellings, right? Because they're only meant to just be temporary. So if a city looks like one of these, it gives a powerful picture of how pathetic judah's condition is the results of their sin we would pick a different image we would talk about a city in iraq after a bombing you know where everything is in ruins or or whatever but the idea is the same the devastating effects of sin are obviously or think about it this way we might use something like this have you ever seen those before and after meth pictures crystal meth well look at it it'll crystal meth, drug, okay, I saw a few quizzical looks, so um, before, sometimes in the matter of of a year, year and a half, someone will look like they've aged literally 20 or 30 years. It's it's horrible, but it's such a a clear visual aid of the, the effects of this nasty stuff, okay? That's what's going on here. So what are the effects of sin? Desolation, ruin. It's the opposite of what God intended for his people. Flourishing in the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. That's what he wanted to give his children. Even in the face of this desolation, the mercy of God is seen. Even though he's got to judge them, it's seen in the fact that it's not as bad as it could have been. Look at verse nine. If the Lord of hosts had not left us, us, Isaiah includes himself, a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Remember what happened to those cities? Totally and completely destroyed, along with everyone in them. I mean, what do you think those cities look like after the fire ceased smoldering? Okay, so you can imagine, remember, this is a a people that had been very prosperous and were continuing to go through the religious motions. Can you imagine how offensive talk like this would have been to Isaiah's hearers? (laughs) These were religious people. What are you, How dare this doom and gloom prophet put us in the same sentence with Sodom and Gomorrah? Do you know how much I spend on bulls and goats in a year? So Isaiah continues. Okay, on second thought, speaking of Sodom and Gomorrah, look at verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Oh, That's shocking. He is saying that Judah, the people of God, are like Sodom and Gomorrah. If your heart and true condition is like that of verses 2 to 10, then this is who you are. Look at verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? If that's where your heart is... What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or, the, or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Can you see the play on words? Lots of bulls and lambs and goats kind of being brought in, trampling. <laughs> and they're trampling the courts because it's in the midst of all this hypocrisy and sin. Bring me no more vain offerings, verse 13, and incense is an abomination to me, new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. In other words, if you're living like Sodom, it doesn't matter how many songs you're singing on Sunday. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. There's nothing wrong with solemn assembly, but if you're coming with sin you refuse to repent of, God can't endure it. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. It's a strong language, but this is a vision from the Lord. We need to see it. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. What do you mean our hands are full of blood? We haven't murdered anyone. Well, Jesus said, anger in your heart tantamount to murder. How about backstabbing? Words that cut and stab? slander and gossip? Character assassination? Envy? Not just, I wish I had what you have, but I don't want you to have what you have. Do you ever silently enjoy it when people you envy stumble and fall? So we get a glimpse at what the Lord loves by seeing what he hates. He hates religious pretense. He hates hypocrisy. So if our hearts are full of unconfessed sin that we refuse to repent of, it doesn't matter to him how many songs we sing or how much we put in the plate. You can't buy his favor. Okay, now listen to me. This is, I think, probably much more relevant than we might be willing initially to admit. Have you ever been convicted of something that you have done or failed to do and you fear dealing with it. You fear the consequences. Maybe loss of face. Maybe the relational fallout if you admitted it or confessed it. Or the impact of, on job security if you were honest about what you had done the legal ramifications. And so what do you do? You opt for more religious observance instead, hoping that will appease God and salve your guilty conscience. I've done it. I actually did it for years, and it didn't do any good. It's taking salvation into your own hands on your own terms. Are you familiar with the biblical phrase, to obey is better than sacrifice? Or, in the text that Alex read, remember who this is. This is David. After what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah, you can sacrifice all the animals you want, David. I want you to repent. So David says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God you will not despise. Okay, So God doesn't want a multitude of religious observance in place of trusting him in that one area of life that he's calling you to obey him. So some of you might see this morning, your religious hypocrisy and fear dealing with your sin. Some of you might have done a pretty good job at pulling the wool even over your own eyes until maybe right now, maybe you haven't seen it before, but you're feeling the light shine in some very uncomfortable places right now. So what are you gonna do? You might wanna run. You know God is holy. But before you walk out of here this morning and change the subject... What does God have to say to religious hypocrites? What does God have to say to the spiritual equivalent of an insolent teenager? And again, please, let's none of us hold this out at arm's length. This is irrelevant for us all. We are about to see who God is. Even if we don't have you know, rank hypocrisy present in our hearts that we're trying to hide, we get to see who God is. We get to see what he's like dealing with sinners like this. Sinners, rebels, hypocrites. And so even if we have true faith in God this morning, we will at times be guilty of rebellion and hypocrisy. So we need to know God. We dare not be like the people of Judah who were dumber than donkeys when it came to knowledge of God. If our sin is this deep and pervasive, the cure is gonna have to go deep and be pervasive in its cleansing and transforming effects. So what does God have to say to rebels and religious hypocrites What does God have to say to the spiritual equivalent of an insolent teenager? Look at the invitation in verses 16 to 20. Well, actually, before we get there, let's look first at verses 5 and 6. Just what does this say about God and his character? There's some really sobering news as far as sin is concerned and the nature of it in here, but there is so much good news as far as the character of God. Look at verses 5 and 6. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Is that how you view God when you sin and are rebellious and stumble again into that pattern that you've fallen into so many times? I'm sure he's just so sick of me. Yeah, sin strikes us down. Stubborn rebellion is like spiritual codependency with an abuser. Why will you stay there and get beat up again? Listen, rebelling against the Lord is self-injury. Do you believe that? Do you see that? We need to see that. We need to believe that. We need vision to see ourselves as God sees us and accept it and to see God as he reveals himself and believe it. Okay, So God, when he calls us to himself, is calling us away from what is killing us, making us spiritually sick, beating us up. Conviction of sin is actually a gift of grace from the God who saves. Listen to this. This is great. Ray Ortland Jr. again. What is conviction of sin? It is not an oppressive spirit of uncertainty or paralyzing guilt feelings. Conviction of sin is the lance of the divine surgeon piercing the infected soul, releasing the pressure, letting the infection pour out. Conviction of sin is a health-giving injury. Conviction of sin is the Holy Spirit being kind to us by confronting us with the light we don't want to see and the truth we're afraid to admit and the guilt we prefer to ignore. Conviction of sin is the severe love of God overruling our compulsive dishonesty our willful blindness, our favorite excuses. Conviction of sin is the violent sweetness of God opposing the sins lying comfortably undisturbed in our lives. Conviction of sin is the merciful God declaring war on the false peace we settle for. Conviction of sin is our escape from malaise to joy, from attending church to worship, from faking it to authenticity. Conviction of sin with the forgiveness of Jesus pouring over our wounds is life. Is that the way you view conviction of sin? That's the way God wants us to view it. We need this vision. You see it? And we need this merciful invitation from the God who saves. He calls us to respond to his conviction and leave our sin behind. Look at the invitation in verses 16 to 17. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. That's what it looks like to be the real deal. That's what authentic faith looks like. If you turn away from this invitation, no amount of religious observance will make up for it. So how can we wash ourselves clean and make ourselves clean? Where's the power to live this whole new life here in verses 16 to 17? Well, there's one more invitation in verses 18 to 20. And again, remember, this is how God speaks to insolent teenagers. Don't forget the taste in your mouth. When we talked about how do you feel viscerally about that insolent teenager, this is how God speaks to insolent teenagers. This is how God talks to corrupt rebels who have forsaken the Lord, despised the Holy One of Israel, who are utterly estranged from Him. Again, language from earlier in this section. Look at verse 18. Come now. (laughs) Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, remember you have blood on your hands, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Do you see the difference? There is a world of difference between the coming back in verse 15. When you spread out your hands, see, coming for worship, right? Praying to the Lord, I'll hide my eyes from you. Your hands are full of blood. There's a world of difference between that coming, that hypocritical, refuse to see your rebellion and repent of it, and the coming in verse 18. It's like the difference between the Pharisee and Luke 18. I thank you, God, that I'm not like so-and-so, like this guy back here, this tax collector, he looks on him with contempt from the moral high ground of his own righteousness. That's the stuff that God hates. And then you have the tax collector, the traitor, the opportunist. And he beats his breast and says, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. He he listened to this invitation you'd let me come and you could make my sins that are scarlet, as white as snow. It's the difference between David worshiping before Nathan came to him and after in Psalm 51. There was some serious distance between adultery and murder, and he just goes about his business. This is the king, are you kidding me? And I'm sure he was going through the motions. And it was making God sick. But he sent his prophet, just like he's sending Isaiah, here and to us. And tells a little story. You're the man, David. Oh, I see it. I see it now. And he wrote Psalm 51. So just... Can we just savor the fact that this is our God? (laughs) Insolent teenagers like us, that he says, would you come to me? Don't. Don't hide from me. Come to me. Let's Let's talk. Let's, Let's sit down and work this out. I want you to see who you are, and I want you to see who I am. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. Trust me. God loves insolent teenagers. There might be a parenting lesson in there, by the way. He appeals to them and invites them to come and be washed clean. How great is our God. God saves. We are going to see it over and over and over in Isaiah. Over and over again, Isaiah is going to point forward also to the ultimate cleansing that comes only through Christ, the suffering servant we're going to see in Isaiah 53. So what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You don't scramble and do more religious observance to try to appease God and get in His good graces. You come when He invites you on His terms He says, let's reason together. Let me wash you and make you clean. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We need to see it. We need to see it over and over and over again because we are slow to believe the depth of our sin. We are prone to be willfully blind to it. We are slow to believe God takes our sin seriously. We flatter ourselves. We play fast and loose. We're desensitized. And so, of course, we don't feel the need to keep coming. We're slow to also believe that he mercifully invites us stubborn stubborn rebels to be cleansed and transformed by his grace. So, as we continue on through the book of Isaiah, (laughs) we are going to get the good news over and over and over again that God saves. And I hope that that doesn't hit your ears as, well, come on, I've heard that already. Like, can't we learn something new? (laughs) Are you kidding me? (laughs) We need the gospel every day. We need to really, really believe it. And so, what a great thing. How much potential is there in this study if we're gonna just get the gospel preached to us over and over, to my own heart, all of us, over and over again? that there's hope for insolent teenagers like us. That God, by the gospel, the blood of Jesus shed so we could be washed clean and made white as snow for the first time if you've never come to him and over and over again as we are prone to wander. So let's listen. Let's respond as we go through the book of Isaiah. No matter what the cost, it might be costly in the short run, you might have to, you know, confess something that's costly. I'll tell you, with me, it was stuff I'd stolen. I had a list of stuff. I was a klepto when I was in my junior, like late elementary school and junior high years. I had this list of stuff. And whenever the Lord would kind of work on my heart, you know, in some church or camp setting or something, he'd bring that up. Are you going to trust me? you going to deal with this? And finally, when he actually gave me faith, which was in college, I thought, for the first time, I'd rather go to jail with Jesus than not deal with my sin and try to do it on my own. For the first time I had faith, before I was doing this cost-benefit analysis. This is too costly. I'm going to look like an idiot. I might, go to, I might get a record. And I thought, well, if I go to jail, but the Lord's with me, he can help me get a job. <laughs> he, you know, he's kind of like the Lord of heaven and earth, you know? So I don't know what that might be for you. But let's listen. Let's respond no matter what the cost because the vision lays out two paths before us. Look at how this section ends, verses 19 and 20. If you are willing and obedient, faith and obedience, a soft, believing heart to receive this vision You shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, if you keep sticking your fingers in your ears, you will be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So there are the options. Eat or be eaten. Trust the Lord with a willing, obedient heart, responding to his invitation. Come on, come and reason with me. Let me tell you about the blood of Jesus. You need to hear it. You need to see it. And you'll be fed by his hand, eating his grace and his provision. He's a good shepherd. If you refuse and rebel, sticking your fingers in your ears, even if you continue on with all the religious observance in the world, you will be beaten up and eaten up by your rebellion. And then you'll be judged. Those are the options. So I hope that you see... (laughs) Lord, help us see the God that is making this invitation so that we all run to him. Let's pray. Oh God, you are a savior. <laughs> and I pray that we would exult in it. I pray that we would see through this vision, who we are. Help us to be honest with ourselves. Help us not to to try to skitter out from the light that you're shining into the uncomfortable spots in our lives. And I pray that we would stay there because we know the character of the one who is convicting us. You don't get any sick pleasure out of making us squirm. You want to heal us and give us life. So we thank you that Jesus gave his life so that you could give us life. And I pray that we would exalt in the blood of Jesus that can cleanse us from all our sin. In his name we pray.